Hello, you're listening to Stanford MedCast, Stanford CME's podcast, where we bring you insights from the world's leading physicians and scientists. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. I am your host, Dr. Ruth Adibuya. Welcome to Season 4 of Stanford MedCast. This episode is part of our Hot Topics mini-series. In this episode, I am talking with Dr. Joy Saki. Dr. Saki is the inaugural Chief Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Officer for Stanford Medicine and a Clinical Professor of Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine. As Stanford Medicine CEDIO, Dr. Saki is responsible for designing, developing, and overseeing enterprise-wide strategies and efforts to advance inclusive excellence, health equity, and justice. In addition, Dr. Saki is responsible for supporting and unifying existing diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts underway at the Stanford University School of Medicine, Stanford Medicine Children's Health, and Stanford Healthcare. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you for having me, Ruth. It's a delight to be on your podcast. A great place for us to start and for our listeners to learn more about you is Can you share with us your journey and experiences that have led you to become the inaugural Chief Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Officer for Stanford Medicine? What inspired you to take on this role? Well, thank you for this question. Let me start off by saying that as a physician, I'm an internist and primary care physician. My journey into diversity, equity, inclusion, and health equity was not one that I predicted. So went to medical school finished my residency at an academic medical center in Boston and very much imagined that I would be an educator and managing patients and really being involved in helping train the future physicians for society. And it was during the course of my caring for patients, advocating for them, puzzled by the differential in outcomes for patients seemingly who are getting care in the same healthcare delivery system that I began to really appreciate that not all patients have the same opportunity to be healthy. One of the things you're taught as a physician is to be curious and ask questions. And so in my quest to understand why is it that patients, in spite of evidence-based medicine and guidelines as to how to treat them, why is it that some patients have a harder time attaining equitable health outcomes? I began to understand that there's been a long history of health disparities in our country and that people have spent their lifetime studying the causes of these disparities, trying to understand to what extent some of that is a reflection of the patient's behavior and choices versus the circumstances and the lived environment in which they find themselves versus, quite frankly, factors that they have no control over, like air pollution. And the more I got into this, the more I felt really passionate to join others in finding a solution. And as a result of really honing on and becoming really committed to helping to advance solutions to health disparities, I learned about some major Sentinel reports that had been released that actually identified squarely that one of the solutions, one, not the only solutions to addressing health disparities is in fact to have workforce diversity. When you think about it, it would make sense that if we have a representative workforce diversity in the healthcare delivery system, and patients are then able to see themselves in the healthcare workforce, there perhaps will be chances that we might 
connect differently with patients in a way that allows every patient to feel confident and have a sense of trust in the healthcare delivery system. And so I went from really wanting to figure out how we can make sure that every patient has the opportunity to be as healthy as possible, to beginning to appreciate the fact that we need to get involved in increasing workforce diversity. And the moment you start thinking about workforce diversity, it becomes evidently clear that waiting until people have gone to medical school and applying for residency is not the place to start. So at my hospital at the time, I was invited to join the internship selection committee as a result of me making noises about we need a more diverse house staff so that we can ultimately have a more diverse faculty. And while it was interesting and was rewarding to be at the decision-making table to help in the selection of future interns, it became infinitely clear to me then, just like it became clear to me when I was looking at the patient outcome situation, that there were factors beyond those candidates that make them either highly qualified for a program like the one that I was serving on the selection committee for, and factors that really were not within your control, such as where they were born, the zip code in which they lived, the caliber of the grade school they went to, and whether or not their high school prepared them to then land really good colleges. And if they didn't go into a college where they had access to pre-medical advising that made them a strong candidate for medical school, well, then there's no way we're going to see them as candidates for residency. So it became sort of this orange that the more I peeled, the more I realized that there are factors much further upstream around which we need to engage. What I didn't realize at the time was that I was beginning to understand the philosophy of having pipeline programs and having those pipeline programs start as early as possible in our educational system so that we as academic medical centers, at least where I sat, can help to mitigate some of the inequitable opportunities in our educational system that really disadvantage whole groups of people and prevented us from realizing the full talent that we have in our society. So when Tufts University School of Medicine came knocking on the door and wanted to recruit me to oversee an office for multicultural affairs and global health that also included overseeing pipeline programs, it seemed like it was really the answer (laughs) I'd been searching for. So I joined Tufts. So then I fully immersed myself in working on the twin problems of continuing to further elucidate the causes of disparities, helping to enhance workforce diversity, starting as early as we can, and creating opportunities, exposure, equipping people with the tools and skill set for them to be successful all the way until they become physicians or other health professionals. Working on that and at the same time really beginning to recognize right away that right now and right here, we also needed to work on diversifying the current faculty. So the next 14 years, I was engaged in not only helping to diversify students, the student body, but also diversifying the faculty. And that, by the way, includes not only physicians, but also biomedical scientists who are teaching PhD students and sometimes dual degree students, MD, PhD students. So it became this all-encompassing effort to work within the healthcare delivery system and really partner with organizations outside of the healthcare delivery system, including high schools, to try and really work towards ultimately advancing health equity. 
So that brings me to the day when I learned that Stanford Medicine had created this position serving the adult delivery system. It seemed like it was the right combination of the work I began at the hospital level to really address directly and squarely with promoting health equity, first for my patients, but then in my previous role as medical director for the patients that were collectively our patients in our practice, to really going deep into trying to diversify student body and workforce, and now to be able to put the two together and test out some of the things that we're doing right there within the healthcare delivery system. That seemed like a wonderful opportunity for me to bring all the experiences and passions that I had together and to join this incredible institution. Thank you for sharing your personal road to where you are. I heard how diversity, equity, inclusion is foundational to the work that physicians, educators have across the healthcare system. And you mentioned how in your work, you uncovered how diversity, equity, inclusion are really crucial in the field of medicine, healthcare, in the pipeline. And I'm curious, how can medical schools and healthcare organizations really promote diversity in their student and staff recruitment efforts? How can we do that in light of the recent Supreme Court decision? The Supreme Court decision, definitely, it's a movement that we're going to look back and feel like it stopped us in our tracks in some way. However, it's not as devastating as one would think. The ruling was narrowly focused on admissions process and now has made it illegal to use race as a factor in considering a candidate for admission, whether it's to medical school and undergraduate. However, it does not stop the work that we must do to make sure that we are extending educational opportunities for kids in K-12 so that kids who may not be like my kids, who have a mother who's a physician, so they can say, oh, women can be physicians. One day I'm going to be a physician. Those kids need to be exposed. They need to be exposed to physicians within their community, maybe physicians who have gone to grade school and high school, and in spite of it all, in spite of the odds, have somehow managed to become a physician. So that outreach work, that work of really going to communities that otherwise may not have easy access to role models in healthcare and inspiring them to actually imagine the possibility of joining us in our profession, that work must continue, right? Who's going to stop you when you decide to go to your high school and talk to the kids there and say, hey, I used to once sit in this chair and look at me now, I'm a doctor now, you can be too. How do we quibble about that, especially as a country that is really founded on opportunity? So the outreach work, we can continue. The other thing we can continue is that we can try and wish it away, but we're not living in a post-racial America by any stretch of the imagination. Yes, we had a Black man for a president, but look, just all you have to do is go around and look around and see what is happening. We're not living in a post-racial state. And so long as racism exists with us, there will be differential impact of racism on different communities and different individuals. Fortunately for us, the Supreme Court ruling said you can consider the impact on lived experiences of your candidates, specifically from discrimination and racism. You can't consider their race, but you can consider how their walk through life has been impacted by racism. I think that it's an opportunity for us to really explore what the narrative is for each of the candidates who are applying to come to us. 
Now, medical school, it will be relatively easy to do that because we ask them not only to write a personal statement, but we also interview them. So you can ask the question, whereas the challenge is going to be so much bigger for undergraduate admissions population because by and large, they don't have interview as part of their process. So I'm not trying to minimize really the setback that this ruling has dealt us. Obviously, if we don't have a diverse undergraduate campus or undergraduate population, we're going to have a hard time getting people who actually apply to medical school. Thank you for putting that in perspective. It is a huge deal, but at the same time, there's still an opportunity for us to be intentional in how we pull together cohorts of students that participate in medical school training. And then I want to go to the other end of it. So we talk about bringing them in, but now the inclusion part. In your experience, what are some successful strategies for fostering an inclusive and supportive environment for these underrepresented healthcare students and professionals? I cannot overemphasize the importance of mentoring. Remember how I talked about for some of these students that we're seeking to come in, they're infinitely capable. They just have differential in terms of opportunity and exposure. For many of them, they don't have a mother like me who works at a medical school and can say, hey, one of the ways to really set yourself up for success when you go to medical school is also to go make sure that you are arranging to figure out what opportunities there may be for your summer that is coming up, doing research and all that. There's nobody at home who's necessarily going to guide them through this process to set them up for success for the next step, which is really being competitive for residency. So one of the ways we can level the playing field when we bring people from such disparate backgrounds, top-notch schools, private schools, some who are first in their family to graduate from college, let alone medical school, people from socioeconomic backgrounds that are very different, and some people who have really had to work literally since they were young kids to put themselves through school. One of the ways you can level the playing field is give them access to mentors who are on the inside who can give them that intel about how to navigate this very complicated profession. It's a very long journey to go from kindergarten all the way to becoming a physician. So whether it's mentoring at the level of the undergraduate experience, medical school, suddenly when they become residents. So I think mentors are equally important, making sure we're creating a sense of community. Because peer mentoring, it turns out, is actually quite powerful. Because again, let's take advantage of the fact that we have a one-room schoolhouse when it comes to medical school, where people are coming from all walks of life. Let's create the environment where they are learning from each other. So that I can tell you my experience growing up in Ghana, and you can tell me your experience about skiing in Colorado and going to Switzerland for vacation because you come from a very affluent background. And together we can learn from each other and really validate each other's walk. But the fact is we're all here together. We somehow we've managed to arrive at the same point in spite of the different paths that we took to get here. So building community, giving people access to good advice, good guidance are going to be so key as part of the inclusion piece that would allow people to thrive. As someone employed by Stanford, over the past couple of years, we've had the opportunity to engage in some really thoughtfully created and curated education and training on different key concepts that relate to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And more than one of them has been around implicit bias. And we all know how implicit bias can influence medical decision-making and patient care. And in fact, 
going back to what you earlier said, seeing how workforce diversity would be one strategy for employers to put in place to help mitigate some of that. But I want to call specific attention to a lawsuit filed in the U.S. District Court in Los Angeles targets a 2019 state law, AB 241, that describes implicit bias. What have been your reflections on these lawsuits' implications for California healthcare organizations? That's a tough question. First of all, I should preface my response by saying that I'm an incurable teacher. I'm an educator at the core. And so I tend to think if you make people aware of something, if you educate somebody about something, then you've equipped them with knowledge. And that knowledge then will inform their behavior. It doesn't always work. <laughs> I spent plenty of time as a primary care physician telling my patients about the ills of smoking. And do you think they stopped smoking? Of course not. <laughs> we, we found out there were other tools that we needed to pull out in order to actually affect behavior. But that set aside. I am a firm believer that when you make physicians who, by and large, enter the profession because of altruistic reasons, and you make them aware of their own unconscious biases, and the fact that those unconscious biases can have implications for the decisions they make on behalf of their patients, most people will want to say, what do I do to mitigate that? And so I'm a firm believer that, in fact, just the training and education that allows people to become aware of this And then giving them the tools to mitigate that is helpful. I also believe in systems approach. So somebody famously says, trust but verify, right? So I believe that when I educate someone that they're going to do the right thing, but you don't want to just leave it up to human nature to decide to do the right thing. If you have a systems approach, if you're reviewing the outcomes of the practices that we engage in in the hospital, you have metrics to look at whether everybody who is working in the hospital in fact, has a similar profile of patients' surgical outcome, birth outcomes. And if there's differences, to say, hey, let's talk together and see why your patients seem to have a higher rate of, let's say, complications after giving birth. And let's see how we can mitigate that, because that obviously has an impact on the birthing person. So the hospital can do a lot to put the systems in place that allows us to quickly identify differences in outcome based on the profile of different providers and then help them to get better at it. The other thing we could do in terms of the systems level is really have clinical guidelines that allow people not to guess what they ought to do. When somebody shows up in the emergency room with chest pain, it's a pretty clear clinical algorithm that exists now that allows people to really use a checklist to make sure that they're doing certain things. And that minimizes the variation. There was a study actually many years ago that showed that cardiologists attending a national conference, when presented with video vignettes of patients with chest pain, same symptoms, but the image was different, that they had different recommendations. Why would that be? (laughs) Same spiel, same script, but maybe a woman, maybe a man, maybe somebody of color, maybe not. And they ended up with different recommendations. So a systems approach that ensures this checks and balances, uniformity, measuring, and seeing if there are variations and if so, addressing them. All of these are things that we've talked about in terms of addressing the impact of implicit bias on medical decision-making. Now, is there room for litigation? Well, I think sometimes the fear of litigation, the fear of malpractice insurance lawsuits, for instance, can also 
really focus a healthcare delivery system to taking those steps that I just described. So that brings me to this lawsuit. I think that if the outcome of this lawsuit or even the appearance of the outcome of this lawsuit is that healthcare delivery systems say, what do we have in place as check and balances to make sure that we're mitigating the unconscious biases that our professionals have and also making sure that we actually don't leave it entirely up to individual judgment as to what to do. Then I think we would have what I classically call the carrot and stick approach. If on the other hand, this lawsuit leads to basically people pointing fingers at each other and saying, oh my gosh, you're bad. You have implicit bias and you're responsible for this outcome or that outcome. And it ends up making people fearful rather than joining together to work together. Then I think it would be an unfortunate turn of events. I appreciate your thoughtful response to that. I know that is a tough question to try and unpack in so short of a time. But also what I appreciated from your response is that there is an opportunity here for healthcare systems to take a look at what their processes are right now and what can they put in place and ultimately point it back to, let's make sure we're taking care of all patients the same way. If the things you mentioned had to do with outcomes, how can healthcare leaders measure and track progress and diversity and inclusion efforts? And what are some key metrics or outcomes to look for? Another great question. And as a matter of fact, when it comes to health equity outcomes, there's a national debate about what metrics make sense to track. There are the usual disease-specific outcomes, such as checking for something called hemoglobin A1C that tells us how well-controlled a patient with diabetes is. We can look at mortality rates from particular types of cancer and see whether when you do a sub-analysis, is the outcome equal among people, regardless of race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, and so on. So there's some sort of concrete things. Maternal mortality, which has been in the news, especially with Serena Williams famously having a life-threatening illness in the aftermath of her giving birth, that is something that you can concretely track. You can track what the maternal mortality is in California compared to Massachusetts, compared to other states, and even narrow it down to the level of county. And then see as a hospital that is serving that catchment area, what you can do to actually improve that. I think it's going to be a lot more complicated when it comes to how we track progress in making our healthcare delivery processes, because they're complicated, multiple steps those processes equitable, making sure that the referral process, access to care, to specialist care, how quickly people are seeing when they are referred, let's say they've been diagnosed with something. There are a lot of multiple steps to actually getting the care that you need. And I think that all of those processes also deserve attention because together they end up leading to the outcomes that patients experience not to mention even patient satisfaction. I told you earlier about how sometimes patients really walk out on us or they don't show up to our appointments because they just don't feel respected or included or valued. So my goal, my aspiration is that every single team that sits anywhere in our healthcare delivery system will come together and discuss what metrics make sense for the piece that they're doing that will ultimately advance health equity. I believe that every team, everyone involved in processes that lead to high-quality patient care delivery 
can in fact have an equity lens, a health equity lens, and then track their progress towards that. And that is going to require more than me dictating what kind of metrics we need to have in place. That's for healthcare outcomes and health equity. I think we have researchers who can actually track not only who is participating in research, but the processes by which they use to recruit patients so that clinical trials have the most diverse patients, because it matters. The outcome of those clinical trials dictate how we care for patients tomorrow. And so that's another example of it's not only in the healthcare delivery space, it's about research. It's about even the basic scientists interrogating themselves to see what kind of questions are they asking in the lab that would allow them to also feel like they're contributing to this overarching goal of advancing health equity. What do you see as the future of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the field of medicine and healthcare? And what are some steps that you believe are crucial in achieving that vision? We started this conversation by talking about how there are headwinds that are actually threatening to potentially stop us in our track or even, God forbid, make us take steps backwards. And so I would say, interestingly enough, the first thing I will talk about will not seem to be related at all to healthcare industry. I think we, within the healthcare field, need to do a better job articulating to the lay public why it is so important to pursue diversity, equity, inclusion. We're not trying to be woke. We're not trying to simply just say, you know what, we are very liberal. We need to literally help people connect the dots between workforce diversity and inclusion and the health outcomes that they expect of their loved ones. Whether they are living in rural America or living in the urban city, everybody deserves to go into a hospital and expect that they're going to come out with a good outcome or go into a clinic and feel like they're going to get the information they need to be empowered to live as healthy as possible. People care about health. That's the one thing that is a unifier. So if we can leverage that viewpoint and say, listen, this is about your grandmother. This is about your grandfather. This is about your loved ones having the right and access to being as healthy as possible and to then help people understand, like we've been doing in this conversation, that Doing diversity work, equity work, inclusion work, it's not in isolation of that North Star. It's in fact, to serve that North Star, I think we will have more public outcry out there when they see people trying to dismantle all the work that we've done towards diversifying our workforce and work towards achieving equitable health outcomes. Because then they get it right away and they put it to the level of their own interest. The end of the day, let's leverage the self-interest that we all have to be able to make it. What does that mean when the public understand that better? Well, they will help to be our allies and advocates to make sure that we're rolling back some of these things that are really literally interfering with the care that patients deserve. Trying to take the decision-making out of the sacred patient-doctor relationship and say, government is not going to let you decide how you treat your patient. The other thing that it will do is that it will hopefully, again, aspirationally, motivate people to vote because that social political environment that we live in, we've learned is so important and it actually has an impact on what happens in the doctor's office. So we need people to actually exercise their civic duty to vote and to vote in a way that is actually issue-based and not identity politics-based. So that overarching will help position us to continue to make progress 
in this country. And I know that progress is two steps forward, one step back, or sometimes one step forward, two steps back. But we need to bring the public along with us. And right now, we have not really done a great job of speaking in plain language that allows the public to really get what it is that we're doing and why it is important. And then beyond that, I think the idea that we should continue the efforts to expose people to say this is still a noble profession and that there are kids who have not even thought about going into medicine because they think they're not good at math when they're in fifth grade. So that continued outreach, I think we can't stop. We cannot afford to stop. The third thing is that the demographics of this country is changing. And at some point, it will be business suicide to not engage this very diverse demographic generation to engage them to come into our profession and to help have them help us better care for this increasingly diverse population. So if we continue to think of the profile of who ought to be a doctor or a scientist, there will soon be a time where we will have trouble actually recruiting people to come into our classrooms, right? Mm -hmm. So my hope is that at some point, the economists and politicians who care all will also connect that dot and say, wait a minute, in order to serve this society, we can roll back what America is and what America is becoming. We need to actually support this work. We need to fund it. We need to make sure that there's funding available to study the causes of health disparities. And we need to make sure that everybody has a fair share to live as healthy as possible in this country. Those were really insightful comments. Your approach is very optimistic and very tactical in terms of things that we can do in the future. This was a fantastic conversation. It takes having questions that are so highly informed to actually have a conversation that gets to the issue. So thank you. Thanks for tuning in. This episode was brought to you by Stanford CME. To claim CME for listening to this episode, click on the Claim CME link below or visit medcast.stanford.edu. Check back for new episodes by subscribing to Stanford Medcast wherever you listen to podcasts.